This is an Odyssey original. This is Coronavirus Daily. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Odyssey Studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. More people getting their COVID vaccines every day. Does that mean we're getting closer to herd immunity? Well, maybe. Can we ever really reach it? The all clear could be given soon for use of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, but it remains to be seen whether people will actually want to get it. The thought of COVID variants starting up the pandemic all over again? Unnerving. Scientists, though, may be able to stop the worst-case scenario through genetic surveillance using technology to get variants' genetic info and then track it. You will see a lot of stars at this weekend's Oscars, but you may not see a lot of facial coverings. COVID vaccine shots going into lots of arms. The CDC says nearly half of all adults in the U.S. have now received at least one dose. It also says an average of 3.2 million doses are being administered each day. So that means we are on track for herd immunity soon, right? Or is that something that's a long way off if we ever get there. Dr. Robert Kim Farling, professor of epidemiology, community health sciences at UCLA, served as director of the Division of Communicable Disease Control and Prevention at the L.A. County Public Health Department. So uh, herd immunity, we've talked a lot about that in recent months. And as the vaccines come rolling out and being shot into people's arms, we hear about it more and more. Is that realistic? And I guess we need to define are we talking about herd immunity for this country or herd immunity for the entire planet? Well, I think that's a very good point that you're raising. Uh, herd immunity, and I often like the word community immunity, I mean, we're not all cattle, although that is the correct epidemiologic term, uh, is something that uh, has some variability in its interpretation. It can mean basically a marked reduction in disease transmission or can mean going to actually zero cases like you have with eradication. Let's talk about the problems with it, reaching it. We hear, you know, 70%, 80%, 90%. First off, there's probably not a magic number, right? It's just where you have enough people with immunity for the disease to not spread that far. There's still going to be pockets. There's still going to be spread. It just won't go through the herd or the community because most of us are immune. Yeah. It's a very good point that you're raising. And I think that the uh, importance is to recognize that there is no real magic number. I think probably around 80% with the current transmissibility of COVID-19 is probably a good uh, um, target to try to reach for immunity, which can be, by the way, both naturally acquired through having had the disease as well as through vaccination. But I think you have to realize is that you know some of these v- variants are becoming more transmissible. And the more transmissible the disease is, disease is, the higher the vaccination rate has to be to achieve the same level of reduction in disease. Well, and and that goes back to, I guess, my initial uh, question or point about whether we're talking about domestic herd immunity or global. I mean, if we talk about global, realistically, this coronavirus or variants of this coronavirus is here pretty much to stay for our foreseeable lifetimes, is it not? 
well, at least certainly for several years, because of the fact that many of the developing countries, especially, just do not yet have access to the vaccines that we are having in the more developed countries. I think it's an issue of social justice and uh, also that we need to be thinking about. We need to make sure we're looking at these vulnerable populations. But you are correct. As long as there are pockets in the world that continue to have transmission, that means that we're continuing to have introductions of that uh, into the United States. And also, as you kind of implied, you know, there can be pockets within the United States. There could be areas of vaccine hesitancy, things like this, that although the average for the United States might be at the 80%, uh, there may be pockets of only, you know, 30% of people being vaccinated, in which case the virus will find those pockets and will infect them. We also don't get close until we get the kids their vaccines, right? That's exactly right. We're talking about, uh, you know, about 23% of the population is under age 16. So that's a bit uh, later to before that happens in under fives, you know, that's about 6% of the population too. So, you know, all of these are, again, places where the virus can circulate. Is this shaping up uh, the coronavirus to be like the flu in terms of a, a yearly uh, vaccine to protect against various variants that that's a that's a redundancy, isn't it? Various variants. Uh, <laughs> I think oh, you're right. Yeah, actually, I'm, I'm sure, yeah, sure, yeah. it works. Yeah, but, yeah it's, but it works. But, uh, but it works. But but do we need that, or is this likely to be something in between the yearly flu shot for influenza and say a tetanus shot, which you get, I think it's every like ten years or something like that. I think it's to the degree to which we find how long these vaccines are effective for. And we'll be following them very closely. We know that the Pfizer Moderna, for example, are now at least six months out and are still highly effective vaccines. Um, but it's very possible that uh, variants can arise in which the vaccine will have to be tweaked, if you will, in terms of its composition. So that could lead to annual uh, booster type of doses, if you will, to take care of those variants. Or we can be ultimately finding perhaps parts of the virus that are immutable, that don't change. And to the degree which we can actually create vaccines against that, then we might have something, again, along the tetanus line that you just mentioned. Dr. Robert Kim Farley, Professor of Epidemiology and Community Health Sciences at UCLA. Dr. Anthony Fauci says a decision on whether to resume vaccinating people with the Johnson & Johnson shots will probably come by Friday. The shots paused here in California when the recommendation was given to stop them over blood clot concerns. If and when they resume, will people want the Johnson & Johnson vaccine? Or did the pause spook people away from all of the vaccines? Dr. George Rutherford, epidemiologist, director of the Division of Prevention and Public Health at UC San Francisco's School of Medicine. We saw all these arguments when the pause was first happening, right? There was a camp saying, oh man, this is an overreaction. It's going to look really bad for the future of this. No one's going to want this thing versus no, this is how science is supposed to work. And then at the end, you can have even more confidence that it's okay. But is that leap a pretty big one for, for a lot of people to make? I don't know about for for all people, but I think for many people, they understand that, you know, that we're being properly cautious and as problems arise, they're investigated and are are dealt with. Um, how exactly CDC and FDA will deal with this problem remains to be seen. I, I realize they're doing intensive data collection right now, trying to understand the true extent of it and the, how it's, why it occurs and whether you can predict who's at risk and who's not at risk. Um, but we'll just have to, I mean, we have till the end of the week and um, 
I know the meeting's scheduled for Friday, and we'll find out. But, of course, regardless of what happened in, in this country, perhaps the bigger problem is the rest of the world, right? I mean, Johnson & Johnson and AstraZeneca, AstraZeneca shot, which isn't available yet in the U.S., these were both supposed to be the kind of workhorses of the COVID vaccines for much of the planet because they're cheaper to make than the uh, messenger RNA vaccines. There are a whole host of reasons they're easier to transport. Yet, uh, I've been reading for the past few days and, and verified it by talking to some uh, people I know overseas that a lot of people in European countries don't want either one now because they are just afraid of them. Uh, that may that may well be. It's the Europeans tend not to get immunized at the rates we do anyway. I don't know if you saw it, but Angela Merkel got an Astra, AstraZeneca vaccine uh, the other day as a way of sort of boosting um, boosting its uh, positive publicity uh, in Europe. I, I think that it's you know there are other alternatives. We have there's they all have Moderna. They'll have Pfizer. Uh, they'll have uh, other vaccines as they come down the pike. But, you know, really, they're heavily focused on AstraZeneca. You're absolutely correct about that. For Johnson Johnson here, could you foresee some kind of age grouping if it's if it's young women that are affected? If that's the concern, maybe they don't get that one. Yeah, yeah, that's how the that's how some of the European countries have have done a workaround for the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine. It's like women under 60 are sort of the category that uh, most countries are trying to avoid right now. Uh, on the other hand, the British have been um, using AstraZeneca vaccine in, in large amounts and are not, uh, not nearly as skittish as some of these other countries have been. So um, different countries have different uh, policies and play this differently. It is interesting, is it not, though, uh, the kinds of risks that, that people are willing to take without much thought and the ones that they are afraid to take probably with too much thought. Uh, you know, we get into automobiles, people get killed every day in, in cars. Uh, we take over-the-counter meds that can sometimes, you know, kill people. Uh, and we do that without any thought whatsoever. We reach for the bottle, pop the pill, and move on. Yet when we, it comes to these vaccines, is there too much concern, too much scrutiny about relative risk? understand with vaccines, we give them to people who are not sick and who are, who are, are normal, if you pardon the use of that term. Right. Um, and so when you, give, uh, when you give a drug to people who are, do not have an indication for it, like they're not, you know, they don't need it for rheumatoid arthritis or something like that, you know, you're taking a, it has a much higher risk benefit um, ratio. Uh, the people will tolerate them. I'm sorry, will tolerate them, only tolerate them, uh, 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 only so much of a risk benefit ratio, because if they don't feel that they're at risk, then uh, you know whatever the benefit is, it's not it's not something that accrues to them. I think we've done a pretty good job of painting the picture, an accurate picture of the risk of COVID around the world. Um, and you know, I mean, it's we've had sixty thousand additional deaths in in California. Um, which is, you know, just substantial. Uh, the U.S. just published data from CDC that said there were 600,000 additional deaths in the United States, something like some number like that. That's on, on, on top of two and a half million a year. So that's a 25% higher death rate than we've had. Now, those numbers are really impressive. In, in the Spanish flu, in, in, or the 1918 flu, I shouldn't say Spanish, the 1918 flu, the U.S. had 675,000 um, deaths. And we're you know, we might get to that, uh, but this country was smaller then. But still, you know, these are substantial risks that we're uh, that we're talking about, and 
I, you know, I think we've done a reasonable job of painting the picture of what the risks are. Dr. George Rutherford, an epidemiologist, director of the Division of Prevention and Public Health, UC San Francisco. As we continue the battle against COVID-19, the main focus these days, variants. And as we talk more about variants, you're probably hearing a phrase thrown around, genetic surveillance. Well, it's a critical tool when it comes to knowing where you stand with regards to variants. KYW's Matt Leon sat down with Dr. Zachary Kleiss, Associate Professor in the Department of Pharmacology, Physiology at the Drexel College of Medicine to learn all about genetic surveillance. To start, just define for me genetic surveillance, what it is. Sure. Genetic surveillance specific to this, right, to viruses and diseases means when you have these cases where people are getting sick and you've identified why they're getting sick, you take a deeper dive into that virus and you look at the genetic sequence, like so the genome, right? For, for you and me, that's a DNA sequence for this virus, it's an RNA sequence. And rather than just say, yes, it's there, you read every single one of those, you know, 30,000 pieces of code. So you have a picture of exactly what that virus is. What is, and this is useful for determining mutations and variants? Is that the main goal of that, it? That's the main, that's the main public health goal of it, right? Is, is to be able to track not only the variants you know about, right? Because the, the variants you know about, you could maybe do a more, very more specific, you know, quicker test and look for it, but to identify new variants and really get, you know, sort of a hands, I don't know, an objective look at like everything that's out there. You know, I sequence a hundred of these things, you know, 40% of them are this B117 variant that we hear about, you know, 10% of this other thing. And how does that change over time? Is it simply you're just taking, like if I get a, a COVID test and you are the one working it, you, you know, part A is, is COVID present. It, then that just that same test, you're just doing a deeper dive. There's not like a next step for the patient or anything like that. There's not a next step for the patient. This is a, you know, you already have this sample in hand and you've used some of it to do the COVID test. It would be, you know, what do you do with the rest of the, the sample that in a way sort of leads into the problem. You know, there's this, uh, you know, some public health predictions out there. Like if you really want to monitor what's going on, say, you know, let's, let's forget the U.S. It's huge. If you want to just monitor in Pennsylvania, you should be sequencing 5% of all the positive cases. And, you know, you, you do the math. I think PA comes in at about 5,000 new cases a day over the last week or something. So, you know, you need to be sequencing, what, 5%? It's like 250, something like that every day to, to do this. And I guess, you know, the, the problem statement there is you go to your doctor, you get a COVID test, they swab your nose. They send that off to a commercial lab or the state health lab that's doing the testing. And the normal stream for that lab is, well, we take what we need. We tell you if you're COVID positive or not, and then we throw out the rest. Right. And because that's not the lab that would be able to be able to do this, you know, genetic surveillance. And there's really no way for like, let's say the public, you know, the, the health department says, well, hey, we'll, we'll, we'll go back. Let's sequence that. And they go, well, sorry, it's already it's already gone. You know, there's a little bit of a disconnect there in getting it done. Yeah, that was kind of my next question. Just from reading some articles and and listening to people talk, it sounds like this is not something the U.S. is great at. It sounds like Europe is is much better. Am I being fair there? I, you are being completely fair there. I, I kind of anticipated this and went looked up the numbers. Back in January, we had sequenced 0.3, so like what, 1 in 300 
of every COVID case that we had in the country, whereas the UK was at 5%, Denmark was at 12%, and Australia had sequenced over half of their their infections, right? I, I will give some props. We're better. March, we did 1.6%. So that's, that's you know, we're, we're on this upward trend. We're certainly not doing as well as we could be doing when you look around the world. Why is that? Because this is another thing I feel like you just reflexively would think this would be something the U.S. would be, if not leading the way, right at the forefront. What is this just a funding right. thing? Why? Why is this? Well, it's not a funding thing because, like, it, so it, so it's probably size and politics, right? And I say it's not a funding thing because I know Gambia and Equatorial Guinea have better sequencing coverage than we do. You know, so you, you can't say, oh, it's a funding issue, right? You know, clearly we've got better funding and, and more labs to do things. It's a little bit of just a logistics problem, right? Uh, you know, we're a big country. There's lots of discussions going on about, you know, how, how tied in our health system should be. So you don't have an easy way for the CDC to say, look, this is how we're going to do it. You know, in fact, they keep putting out, you know, these sort of initiatives to get people to work together on problems like this. And the latest one was called Sphere. And it was May of last year. But if you look down the list of you know, they tried to get these big genomic sequencing centers to work together with the states. But if you look at the list of states that are involved, like PA is not involved, New Jersey's not involved, you know, like states that, that I think are doing pretty good in terms of how they're managing COVID didn't choose to sign on. Right. So it's sort of this patchwork problem and that meant early on in the beginning, the labs that were doing all of the genetic surveillance were, were labs like mine. Now, my lab doesn't do it. Maybe that's a you know, I could tell you why we don't do it. That's a, a, a roadblock. But. Even now, it's something like 40% of the genetic testing that's done is done by research labs in universities. And that, that sort of tells you that's like three, four steps removed from the public health you know, testing lab, right? So there's a lot of steps that have to happen there. Like you have to have the samples stored and transferred to the right people. You need to have some way to transfer the information along with that because states have been traditionally a little hesitant to share monitoring information. I think on a, you know, keeping people's personal information safe side and also on a, we don't want anyone to think that we're messing up side. You need to get all that stuff to the right lab. And then there is money involved, right? Just because a lab has the capability to do it doesn't mean that they have the money to pay for, you know, hundreds of samples a day or whatever it is that they're going to do. But to maybe put that in perspective, I, you know, there's one lab I know out of the University of Washington that has a big virus center that they think their capacity for a week is about a thousand samples. So like, you know, you think you want to do like 23,000 samples per week to get to the 5% you need, you only need 20 labs, right? And there's way more than that, you know? So it, it's really just a logistics disconnect of getting the money and the funding and the samples all into the right place. Uh, and I think, you know, 350 million people across 50 states, it's just a patchwork of different approaches that's not coming together real well. You mentioned it is getting better in the U.S. Is Do you know why it's getting better? Have some of those roadblocks been taken out? People understand how important this is. You're starting to get people working together uh, a little more. Well, I think, you know, you know, I, I know that 0.3% was total up to January, but I bet if you looked back at last July, it was even worse, right? So there's just a, over time, you work some of the kinks out. The arrival of some of the variants that I know you and I talked about the last time we talked, you know, like B117 and then there was a South African variant were sort of the first on the scene. I think that shook people up a little bit like, oh, wait, you know, we really should be looking at this. And then the Biden administration, when they came in, sort of said, look, you know, this has to be one of our 
major things that we're working on and sort of you know shunted some money over to try to solve the problem. Going forward to get where we need to be, not just in the middle of COVID-19, but just is it a matter of, you mentioned the Biden administration, the federal government kind of grabbing this by the, you know, the, by the shoulders and saying, all right, this is a priority. Even after we're at past the pandemic, we need to be at a certain level with this. Right. I, I think it's, it's a, you know, building capabilities question, right? You know, certainly you would, to me, I'd say, you have the CDC, why can't the CDC kind of, you know, quarterback this whole thing realistically it might actually come down to the states right you know you, you put some sort of guideline in place that says look as a state you need to be able to do this and we'll give you some funds but you have to figure it out i think it's just a planning logistics issue i mean we certainly have the the resources and by that i mean like the equipment and the the expertise you need to do sequencing like that's becoming more and more common in my realm right you know so like the the capability is out there, I think, to sequence probably every single variant you know, or every single infection we have. It would just be a matter of getting the samples to the people, getting the money to the people. And that's going to take some sort of high level organization. And, you know, to, to your thought there, I mean, I'm hoping we're going to learn from this. Right. Because, sure, we're going to we're going to get over COVID. We're all getting vaccinated. You know, maybe the fall is going to look pretty normal. But it would be great if we could do this with like seasonal flu or the next virus that comes along and not have to wait a year before we get it right. And you mentioned variants in our first discussion a few months ago was about variants. Just kind of on that topic, what's your level of concern? Do you feel like we've got a, a handle on that? Uh, you know, uh, overall, the idea of the, the variant situation right now? Sure. I mean, you know, the, the surveillance we are doing is letting us track. You know, I have a CDC graph sitting right over here. Like B117 that we talked about last time is about 40% of the infections now, you know, up from, I think when we last talked, like 1%, right? So the prediction that that was going to be more infectious and start to take over, you know, somebody was right there. I think the, you know, the real question in here is like, well, how much do we care, right? And th there's multiple reasons why we might care about variants, right? And the first one is just the medical, you know, your health side, like, do they spread faster? Right. And there you want to know over the last year, you know, lockdown became this politically charged sort of thing. But really, you want to think about that as, as grades of decisions. You know, can I have 200 people over or does it have to be 50? Right. Can the restaurant open at 50 percent capacity or 75 percent capacity? You know, you need to make these little decisions. And, you know, if you know that most of the spread in your area is one of the variants that doesn't spread so fast, well, then maybe you can open up a little bit more, right? So you can make those decisions on your daily life. You know, you want to know if the variants that are spreading are going to make people more sick. You know, it looks so far like most of these variants aren't necessarily that much more dangerous, which is great. But you want to know, like, should a doctor make a different decision, right? And some of the variants we're starting to see, it looks like, you know, the monoclonal antibody therapy that is probably the best thing we have available is maybe a little less effective on some of the variants like so you'd like to know that right before you make your treatment decisions and then maybe the big one for for most people is just what's it mean for my vaccine and you know i think the, the jury's still out you know because we can only really measure in a dish and we know that you know some of these variants are a little less responsive to your antibodies after you get vaccinated but we don't know what that means like for you um and we're gonna have to follow that I think the good thing there is a lot of these vaccine technologies, it wouldn't be hard to change it, right, and make a vaccine that's going to address the variant, especially, 
you know, I think we're waiting now to see whether or not we're going to have to have a COVID booster, you know, in a year or two. Moderna, I know, has already started a trial on a booster that has changes to account for some of the variants, right? So we can start to plan ahead, which is awesome, right? It kind of speaks to what these companies can do, but we're not going to know what booster changes to make unless we do the surveillance in the first place. And the winner is, oh, I don't have the envelope, actually. Uh, (laughs) This year's Oscars stars attending the ceremony in person, but they may not have to cover up those money-making faces. We'll be back after a short break. Could this be another sign that we are inching back to normal? The 2021 Academy Awards are happening this Sunday, but the Academy is not asking Oscar attendees to wear masks while cameras are rolling during the show but they will be asked to wear masks when not on camera. The audience at Union Station in Los Angeles, that's where the ceremony is being held this year, will be limited to just 170 people. Attendees will be asked to take at least three COVID tests leading up to Sunday and a mandatory temperature check before going inside. The red carpet will include just three photographers and a very limited number of press outlets doing interviews from at least seven feet away. This is an Odyssey original. You can find us on the Odyssey app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. You know, the stars are finally getting what they want this year, the press. (laughs) Way away from them. Those long microphone (laughs) poles. Hey, you. Stop. (laughs) 